The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Teaching elsewhere in the New Testament on Christ as high priest, even though the vocabulary isn't there, the substance is there. Paul, um, Christ, uh, on the matter of sacrifice, Christ gave himself for us a sacrifice, an offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5 2 would be one very explicit statement. Um, he refers later in the chapter to Christ's self-sacrifice, verse 25. Uh, he accents that that was a sacrifice of himself and Titus 2.14 as well. Uh, what is a further instructive here is what we have in 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. Um, there Paul says that Christ gave himself as a ransom, and that is connected with the fact that he is mesites, that he is mediator. The one mediator between God and man. And uh, particularly the notion of Christ as mediator is uh, has priestly connotations to it. That will be, uh, for the writer of Hebrews, connected closely, Christ as mediator, Christ as high priest, in Hebrews 8.6 and 9.15. And that idea of mediator is a distinctly covenantal one, so that uh, I think it would be wrong to, to suggest that Paul is using it in some totally different sense in, in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 5 and 6. The matter of heavenly intercession, uh, where do we find that in Paul? Anybody show off your knowledge of the Romans 8 at verse 34? The, uh, looking in the Johannine materials, actually, uh, I guess a, a sounder, uh, I shouldn't say sounder, but an alternative uh, biblical theological approach would have been to bring it together with the gospel material. But in 1 John, uh, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.7. Let's jump ahead uh, just to make a connection in, in, in John. Um, the, um, in 1 John 2.1 then, Uh, Christ is now, this is the one, one place in the New Testament where not the Holy Spirit, but Christ is called parakletos, advocate or intercessor. So now what is, you can say, implicit in um, 
in John 14, 16, where the spirit is, the, the spirit that Jesus will send is, is going to be the paraclete. Uh, now Jesus himself is identified presently with the intercession of the Holy Spirit. Um, he is advocate. You find that same connection you see in, in Romans 8 if you back up from verse 34 to um, 26 and 27. Uh, the Spirit as advocate or intercessor, Christ as intercessor. The, uh, in, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.5, we're told that Christ has released us from our sins by his blood. Christ has released us from our sins by his blood. And then what is of interest, so that would be uh, difficult, it seems to me, to deny uh, the, 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 the priestly pointedness of that. But then in verse 6, I think which, what reinforces, um, the writer goes on to say that Christ having released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us a kingdom, a basileon, and then our having been made a kingdom is further glossed uh, by saying that we are priests to God and his Father. Priests to God and his Father. Uh, so that um, the believer, uh, believer's identity as priest here, I think, has to uh, simply uh, makes explicit um, or, or unmistakable that the reference to Christ having um, released us from our sins by his blood is to be understood is being seen in a priestly sense. Uh, by the way, not to diverge us uh, further off the field here, but um, the, um, this identification of believers as presently being a kingdom of priests uh, as, uh, or the point here in, in, Roman, in Revelation 1.6 uh, that is a present affirmation of the church. Uh, that language of being a kingdom of priests or being priests, believers as priests, um, is found later in 5.10 and then, of course, in Revelation 20, chapter 6, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, where uh, the thousand-year reign... Um, those who are involved in the thousand-year reign are identified as a kingdom of priests. And you see, I think what you have to consider, I'm not suggesting this is the answer to every issue, but uh, that's not some future identity of the church, but that is the present reality. The writer has made that clear from the very outset. Um, in other words, the writer disposes us toward an amillennial himself, toward an amillennial understanding of chapter 20. <clears throat> now, um, let's see, uh, Peter, quick look in the Petrine material. Um, here, uh, there's not a whole lot to go on, but uh, I think it's worth pointing out that in chapter 2, uh, in describing the church, 1 Peter Five, he describes the church as a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. 
And then he says further of that spiritual house uh, that it is for a holy hieratuma, a holy priesthood. And then further, uh, the function of those in the spiritual house with the holy priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifice. A little bit later in verse 9, then he speaks of believers of the church as a, uh, a kingdom of priests. They are kingly, a kingly priesthood, literally. And uh, it's, uh, certainly then we can say that such statements presuppose the priesthood of Christ. To call the church a holy priesthood presupposes that Christ is the priest par excellence. The Christ as priest is the background, our foundation. So we can conclude um, from this uh, fairly rapid survey that the idea of Christ as priest, both on earth in the past and presently in heaven, in the activities of past sacrifice and present intercession, those ideas are certainly not foreign to the rest of the New Testament. In fact, that puts it, I think, uh, too modestly. Uh, those ideas are present in the other New Testament writers. At the same time, though, um, let's not, having uh, observed the larger picture, uh, fail to appreciate that Hebrews is unique now in the way in which this conception and uh, the terminology, the explicit terminology, is quite central. Uh, Christ's identity uh, as high priest is quite central to the writer's Christology, his presentation of Christ's person and work in a way that is, I think we can say, uh, not the case elsewhere in the New Testament. So as Voss puts it, uh, what we have in, uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews along these lines is a certain plus in the apprehension of Jesus' saving significance. A certain plus in the apprehension of Jesus' saving significance in the way in which the writer accents Christ as high priest. Okay, um, all this is a, uh, was a third um, pr preliminary point, just surveying the New Testament. Uh, there's one other thing, uh, issue that we can touch on uh, before we uh, move on to our key passages. This would be fourth point. Uh, the question, or, or we can begin here with a question as it has been posed from time to time in the history of interpretation. Uh, according to the writer of Hebrews, when does the priesthood of Christ begin? When does Christ begin to function as priest? Now, you see, from time to time, there have been those who have maintained uh, that the priestly work of Christ, according 
uh, to the writer of Hebrews, uh, the priestly work of Christ does not begin until the ascension. And so they have wanted to draw certain dogmatic implications from that, particularly in the light of the situation in the rest of the New Testament that we have been considering, uh, where the vocabulary of priesthood is, um, uh, is, is not explicit, recedes. Um, just to give an example here of, of the approach that we're talking about, with a little more historical profile, particularly those who have wanted to reject a substitutionary atonement, those who particularly want to disqualify the idea of a penal substitution, the death of Christ as, as, as a penal uh, substitution. Uh, are disposed then to, you see, to, dis, to detach the death of Christ from his priestly functions. That, of course, was a, a, in, in, uh, an idea that was run uh, head-on into already at the time of the Reformation. Anybody know who the who is the key actor here? The father of all, uh, how should I put it? I think of it every time I'm driving to the airport. The father of the Unitarian Church of Germantown. Um, uh, not only a, a Unitarian um, a Christology, but uh, a, a strong denial then of substitutionary atonement. So uh, Sassinius, or Sassinus was uh, giving rise to the so-called Sassinian tradition. Um, I guess strictly so. Kinus, um is the what um, was one that argued um, this point, that, and especially on the basis of the material in Hebrews, that Christ is not really the high priestly work of Christ has to do uh, only with his present activity in heaven, not his death. Uh, we can, however, dispense with this viewpoint, I think, fairly summarily, because there are passages in the document that teach rather plainly that specifically Christ's death and more specifically his death as the sacrifice of self belongs to his high priestly work. Here I think we have to do very little, uh, very, uh, little more than just look at several passages, but it probably is worth taking the time just to read them. Um, look at 9, 11, and 12. 9, 11, and 12. Um, the writer says, Hebrews 9, 11, when Christ uh, came as high priest of the good things to come, and they are good things to come from the vantage point of the old covenant, um, the syntax, if you have a, a Greek uh, text in front of you, is, is, uh, has some uh, ellipsis in it here. Uh, you want to pick up the idea. Well, look, uh, let's just pick up the main thread of the construction. Uh, if you jump uh, from the beginning of verse 11 to the end of verse 12, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that were to come, he entered once for all into the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. 
uh, then that idea is qualified in between with the notion that he, uh, he, when he came, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, one that was not made with hands, that is, a tabernacle which is not of this creation. Nor did he enter with or through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered once for all. So you see, very clearly here is the notion, the accent surely is on entering the heavenly sanctuary, the, the sanctuary that's not made with hands of this creation, uh, entering the, heaven, the, the, the most holy place in heaven, but he does that, you see, with priestly blood, with, the, uh, with his own blood being brought into the sanctuary. Uh, later on in 24 and 25, uh, same chapter, the, um, the point is um, that Christ did not enter into, there you see, you have the reference in verse 11 to the, to the, to the most holy, the, uh, made by hands, made by human hands which was a, a, a type, a picture of the true holy place. But Christ entered into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He did that, the writer continues, verse 25, not, nor does he continue uh, entering uh, in, uh, in order to uh, repeatedly offer himself uh, as the high priest of the old covenant understood, entered into the most holy place yearly with uh, blood not his own, blood of animal sacrifices, in other words. Uh, the writer says Christ doesn't do that, verse 25, since it would be necessary then for him uh, repeatedly to suffer from the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away uh, sin for the removal of sin through the sacrifice of himself. So again, uh, the accent is on entering heaven as a high priest, but what is bound up with that entering of heaven is, uh, is, is his presenting himself there as the, sac uh, as the one who has made sacrifice, particularly the sacrifice of himself. Um, another passage, well, without uh, looking there, just look at 10, 11, and 12. And... Um, then let's look at 13:12. Now, let's read 10, 11 and 12. Maybe it, it's, it's worth just taking the time to do that. Uh, every sac every priest, every priest uh, stands daily. Uh, carrying out his ministry and particularly offering the same sacrifices repeatedly, sacrifices which are not able to take away sins. This one, in contrast, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins, has sat down permanently at the right hand of God. So there you see, uh, particularly verse 12, accents the connection between uh, the sacrifice and the heavenly session. And then 1312, 
I think uh, is, is useful because it, it points us, it, I think, underlines what I think we would otherwise see anyway. But you see, he's talking in, um, in verse 11 about the, uh, um, the fact that the, the priests of the old order brought the blood for sins. They brought blood into the most holy place. Blood came into the most holy place through the high priest, uh, but the, uh, uh, the carcasses of the animal were left outside the camp, camp. Wherefore, Jesus, in order that he might sanctify his people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. And um, as, as Voss has pointed out, uh, what we're dealing with then in, um, in these passages and others is the writer's ritual geography. Ritual geography, um, which is kind of a neat way of putting it, uh, based on the um, liturgy of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Point I was brought into our discussion earlier. Um, that's the uh, that's the model or, or the model or pattern of that ritual is um, it, it shapes the writer's use of the distinction between earth and heaven. The sacrifice is on earth, and Christ then enters the most holy place of heaven. So it, it, it's as if the picture of the Day of Atonement is, is verticalized. Uh, now, and, but, but heaven and earth at the same time held together. Yes. Here, as we have already talked about the old idea of ritual geography based on the liturgy that is being found in Leviticus 16 of the Day of Atonement. Um, in chapter 10, as we have already read, especially I read that verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Yes. As the was presented it, is the writer of the book of Hebrews presenting it as something that we should understand or what was the Jesus consciousness when he was doing Did he have some kind of a priestly consciousness while he was doing this thing? Yes, I think so, because it, it, particularly if you read chapters 9, read, just sit down and read chapter 9 through 10, and his whole point, you see, is that the whole Old Testament ritual was a picture uh, that, um, that has now been, it was a, it was a it was pattern of the, as he puts it in 9-11, uh, in of the good things to come. Now, um, you know, I think you do want to be careful psychologizing, even in the case of Jesus, but certainly uh, to the extent that he has a messianic self-consciousness. Uh, and, and I think the Gospels teach that. You see, he says this, Jesus himself says at the Last Supper, uh, this blood, this is the blood of, of the covenant. So I think you would have to, now maybe I'm missing your question. No, you are on the right line, but still, but my point is, when we say that Jesus had a prophetic ministry and priestly ministry mm -hmm. and so on, and when we put those kind of categories, did Jesus really work as a prophet in, at one time or a priest at one time, that he was in that kind of a way or was he functioning? And uh, these kinds of things were there so that we may understand it, right of the Hebrews or uh, people those who are interpreting later, people like Walt, are putting it into their own uh, writings so that we realize it all. 
Jesus have such kind of a... Oh, you mean how, how, how much was, the, was the, 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 the thought of ritual geography in Jesus' head, as it were? Yeah, that is one way as we look it from today. But as the writer of Hebrews, that is still very ancient one, than was, you know, was of present day. But uh, whoever it may be the writer of the book of Hebrews, while well, he was writing, presenting it to us in such kind of a picture. Yeah. But did Jesus have that kind of a picture in his mind while he was doing his ministry? That he has a prophetic ministry, he has a priestly ministry, that he's going to be a king in that way, or that kind of a mentality that he preserved. Yeah, I, I guess my answer to that is, my answer would be yes and no. Um, I think, say particularly in, in Reformed presentations of the work of Christ, we have, uh, in, you look in the Catechism, uh, Christ is prophet, Christ is priest, how is Christ my prophet, how is Christ my priest, how is Christ my king, how does he fulfill these offices? Um, I think you might want to be careful that you don't sort of compartmentalize them, see them sort of just parallel to each other. But I think, you see, that way of putting things is based on biblical material, and I, I don't think that there'd be any good reason um, to... Uh, yeah, I'll pick up in just a second. Um, the, uh, I think there'd be every good reason for Jesus... We would, I think, be bound to say that Jesus saw himself as having a kingly identity, a prophetic identity, and a... And priestly identity, and that, uh, but it's not as if these are being discharged in separate. I mean, they tend; those categories tend to flow across into each other. Yeah, not necessarily to be compartmentalized, but, but at least he had the kind of a uh, understanding. Yes. He was doing this question came simply because there is a kind of talk there um, back, maybe in our special disciplines that we see. There was a time, an age called the uh, age of uh, sinless uh, area and the uh, age of uh, the law is given and today the grace period is there. These kind of compartmentalizations are being done by people where uh, in the, the whole picture of God's uh, time, it's, a, it's God made a covenant with people and that continues today as the reform way of looking at it. Yeah. But there is a kind of different kind of teaching which talks that in the beginning, in the Adamic time, it was the age of a sinless period and then, then came conscious uh, of sin and then came the law and then came the, the grace period and so on and so forth. So that kind of a compartmentalization I always found little difficult and uh, that is only for our understanding we may present the things in that way. Yeah, I think what I hear you outlining is, is really a dispensational model and I think there it, it there are problems, I think it's not only a, a it's not, it's, it's a, it's, it's a teaching advice, device, it really um, is not only not helpful, but it contains, it's, it's faults in the, in the way in which the, it sets these two period, these periods into opposition, or, or particularly the way it understands the contrast between law and grace. And I think particularly as you work through a document like Hebrews, you'll, you'll see that the the writer would not would be uncomfortable, to put it mildly, chopping up things that way. So, um, yeah, you're raising. I, I really hear you're raising a couple of questions. Uh, our our, um, our conceptual models, uh, particularly for teaching, how well do they 
uh, mesh with the text? Are they being imposed on the text? And I think we have to be careful of that. And then uh, a further question, are those conceptual models really foreign to the text uh, distort the material? Um, now, uh, you might wonder why I've been taking the time, uh, why I took the time to, to, uh, to uh, accent over against the position of Sokinus that the, um, that the writer sees the death of Christ as priestly in character. Uh, I've done that because having cleared that away and made that point, it is important then for us to appreciate now um, the, uh, how should I put it even, the, the, the element of, of half-truth that there is, say, uh, in a position of, of someone like Socinus, or what, uh, what uh, disposed him to do what he did with the materials in Hebrews. Because it is the case that the writer does put accent, let's leave it that way for the moment, he accents the place or the phase of priestly work that does begin with the ascension. The emphasis in the book of Hebrews, let me say it again, I didn't, that was a bit awkward way of putting it, the emphasis in Hebrews falls on Christ, not simply as high priest, but as high priest in heaven. And I think that does run contrary to the distribution of emphasis, at least, that we find in the history of the church, the history of theology. Uh, particularly, we can think of developments since the Enlightenment, where there has been such a need to focus on the death of Christ, not simply as having some exemplary significance, but as being a, a, a real sacrifice for sin, a vicarious atonement. Uh, so, the, the, so at least in, in, in Western theology, uh, the accent in considering the priestly ministry of Christ has been on his death. But what we find in the, in the book of Hebrews is, is, is uh, that the stress uh, is placed elsewhere, and particularly... On the, um, on, the, on the present heavenly priestly activity. Uh, let me just say again, it's, it's not as if these... Um, it's, it's, what we're talking here about is, is, is not a, an either-or situation. It's more a matter of emphasis. If you look, for instance, in the Westminster Larger Catechism in uh, Answer 44 or in the Shorter Catechism, uh, 25, you'll find um, quite adequate, um, very helpful biblical summaries that bring out both dimensions of sacrifice and intercession. But now, um, let's see the way in which the writer expresses himself in a um, number of places that, that, that show this, this accent and allowed someone like Socinus losing sight of such passages to even say that the writer doesn't think the priestly ministry begins until the, um, until the ascension. Well, there's, the, there's our key verse that we drew attention to at the beginning in 8.1, where the writer says, the main point, the main point in what I'm saying is that we have a high priest at the right hand um, 
of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. See, that's where he wants to put the accent. The heavenly high priest. That's his kephalion. So that at times then, he even speaks in a way that suggests that Christ was not high priest until the ascension. Uh, look for one example at 5, 9, and 10. Again, verses that we'll be looking at uh, more carefully later on, but just for now, uh, the point at, at issue. He says, uh, verse 8, he talks there about Christ having learned obedience while he was on earth. Verse 7 would make that clear. That while he was on earth, Christ, uh, although he's a son, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Then the writer continues, and having been made perfect, having been perfected, he became to all those who obey him source of eternal salvation having been designated by God as high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now the sequence of thought here seems to be this. Christ, the writer says, became source of eternal salvation and correlative with his becoming source of eternal salvation is the fact that he was named or designated he was named or designated high priest. And, uh, but that he tells us, that becoming source and being designated high priest, that was after he had attained perfection through his obedience. His obedience certainly unto death, verse 8. In other words, the writer here is saying in effect that Christ was designated high priest at his exaltation, in his ascension. And uh, I think what reinforces that is if you look at uh, verse 5, just back up, verses 5 and 6. Um, the chapter begins with some uh, general categorizing of, um, of, 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 what, of what a high priest is, what he does. Then uh, there's a specific application to, five, to Christ in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, uh, but he was, in, again a certain ellipsis here, um, but he was glorified by the one who spoke to him saying, uh, and then there's use of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, you are my son, I've begotten you today, and in another place you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, and those are Psalms we'll have occasion to see, won't argue it here, those are Psalms that are applied by the writer specifically not to the birth of Christ but to the exaltation to the exaltation, both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So that uh, for those reasons, the exaltation is in view here as, as the point in which Christ becomes high priest. Look at 620. 
620. Uh, the writer rounds off his uh, discussion uh, describing uh, uh, Christ as the one who has entered beyond the veil in the innermost place, where Jesus has entered as prodromos, as forerunner for us, having become high priest according to high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here the thought is that uh, uh, the writer seems to be saying Jesus became a high priest when he entered within the veil. That is the heavenly sanctuary. Or in other categories, Jesus became a high priest at the ascension. Or we have further coming back to the uh, context in chapter 8.1. Uh, after having made the statement about the main point being the high priest in the heavenly uh, sanctuary, he says, he makes the, the interesting statement in verse 4, 8 4, that if he were Christ, if Christ were on earth, still on earth, we can say, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Because priests offer, as he goes on to say, offer uh, gifts according to the law. And Christ doesn't do that. So that uh, here it, um, uh, here's, here's the, there's, there's the separating of Christ on earth and being priest. Um, another example of this that um, draw your attention to is in 2.17. Um, here you'll see, as, um, as I address the passage briefly, the, uh, the situation may be more open to debate, but I think that this is most likely to be seen as, uh, as having the same en- emphasis. Uh, the writer says... Uh, rounding off a, a passage in which uh, has, there's been a strong emphasis on the fact that, that Christ uh, identifies with his people. Whence it was necessary for him to be made like the brothers, katapanta in all respects, in all things. He had to be made like them in all things in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things that concern God. Further, in order that he might propitiate the sins of the people. Now, um, what verse 17 clearly says is this. It was incumbent on Christ to be made like his brothers and to be made like them in all things. But you see, that being made with them, like them in all things, would include death. We can see that from verse 14. Uh, He shared fully in flesh and blood, partook of the same things in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Uh, uh, In other words, I'm saying that it would be artificial 
in verse 17, when he, the writer says, to be made like his brothers, katapanta, uh, to exclude death from that. But the writer says that it's uh, incumbent on Christ to be made like the brothers in all things, including death. That is in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And uh, I probably should have gone on to read verse 18. The, the thought of him being a merciful and faithful high priest, uh, that is specifically applied in verse 18, uh, that because uh, he uh, suffered by being tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Uh, something that he presently does in the light of chapter 4, uh, verse 15. Um, you remember the thought there, uh, frequently quoted. Um, we don't have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with our weakness, but we have a high priest who was tempted, katapanta, in all respects, as we are with sin accepted, uh, so that we can now come to that uh, high priest and find uh, the mercy and grace that we need. Um, so that... Um, uh, so that so that being made like his brothers in all respects, including death, is what qualifies him then to become the merciful and faithful high priest. Well, then uh, the question might come up eventually, if not already in your mind, what about the clause right at the end of verse 17, in order that he might propitiate the sins of the people? Isn't that clearly a reference uh, to uh, the death of Christ, as uh, an expression of his being merciful and faithful high priest. Well, uh, I want to uh, suggest, and I recognize here, I, I run across uh, uh, the grain of, of much, if not all, interpretation, but it's a suggestion that um, Voss, I, I ran across in Voss for the first time and gives me a little confidence, um, that uh, this is not talking about the death of Christ. Notice... Uh, what needs to be considered here and, and, and that I see glossed over uh, or are not, not really addressed in, um, in, in, in the exegesis of this verse. The, um, Hilaskastai is the... Um, is the controlling verb form there, expressing the idea of propitiation. Um, anybody able to, uh, to parse that? What kind of form do we have there? Basic verb form. It's an infinitive. Now the key here particularly, what is the tense of the infinitive? It's a present. It's not a, a present infinitive. See, that stresses then that the propitiatory activity in view is to be done repeatedly. And if we were to apply that to the death of Christ, um, you see, then that would run uh, aground just in terms of the writer's own frame of argument, argument, arguing what he says later in chapter uh, 9 about the once-for-allness of the death. So that uh, it seems that what the writer has in view here is a, a an, an activity of propitiation which is progressive or ongoing 
And as Voss suggests then, what we have here uh, is not a reference not to the death of Christ, but to a subsequent activity by which Christ continually applies the propitiatory power of his sacrifice. In other words, a description of what is now the case. Uh, what is now, an act, in other words, this is a propitiatory activity of uh, the heavenly high priest. And, or, or to put it then in, in terms of categories, dogmatic categories that you're probably all familiar with, say, Professor Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, what Voss is saying, in effect, here is that the propitiation in view is not that of once-for-all accomplishment, but of ongoing application, continually applying the propitiatory power of the sacrifice. Um, and you, you see, I'm disposed to that, not simply because Voss said it, but you see, uh, because of, of what we've been wanting to point out here, the, the, the whole movement of the passage is the qualification of Christ being made um, like his brothers in all respects in order then that he might be um, a, a merciful and faithful high priest as an ongoing present activity, both in applying the propitiatory power of his sacrifice continually as well as in coming to the aid of the tempted. Verse 18. Yes, right, right. And that's the way I, I asked Philip Hughes one time when he was working on his Hebrews commentary, uh, what do you think of this idea? And um, he was going to get back to me and never did. So, um, But you know, that's, it's, 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 it's something um, at least to think about. I think it would... Um, see, it, it, in terms of the progression of thought, it, it seems like a step backward... Uh, to bring uh, the death of Christ into view uh, in, that, in that clause at the end of verse 17. Um, so that, um, let, me, let me just sum up um, with reference to the larger issue that we're raising here. Uh, the writer's point in this passage, along with the others that we've drawn attention to here, is that a life of suffering and death are prerequisites for the priesthood. And the priesthood, then, involves functions which are discharged only after he has been made, like his brother's katapanta, including death, in that process. So, again, um, such passages serve to highlight where the writer wishes to put the accent so far as the high priestly work of Christ is concerned, not to deny because he makes clear in the passages that we, we began with that the death of Christ is truly priestly as well. And um, the pattern then is that of, as we said, the, the ritual geography as it could be tagged. So um, to anticipate what we're going to, uh, to see, especially as we work at the... Um, the notion of Christ as, as son, 
and high priest, is that the writer sees, as it were, a, a heightening in office. Um, he is high priest, but because of what takes place at, at the ascension, he enters into a, a phase of, of high priestly activity which is so climactic that by comparison, uh, it's as if he were not high priest before, even though the writer uh, makes clear that he considers him a high priest before the ascension. Okay, um, any questions, uh, comments about that? Yes, Scott. Yes, I, um, I think that um, you would certainly want to connect, connect it very closely. Um, but, um, you know, I think of that hymn, it's 223 in the Old Trinity Hymnal. Um, uh, you see, it, it, it's, uh, now I can't remember the line, but it's, you know, that, that Christ, the five bleeding, um, you know, it's, it's the wound prints that continually... Uh, are, are continually efficacious at the right hand of God. And, um, and, and again, the whole point, you see, on the Day of Atonement, it is not, it, it, it's, it's, not, um, it's not only necessary that the sacrifice be, be made, be killed, but that that sacrifice, that sacrificial blood, be carried into the heavenly sanctuary. So that, that, that Christ is, uh, uh, is, in, is enduringly there as the one who has, um, um, uh, who has made propitiation once for all so that, the, uh, so that there are ongoing consequences of that, which I think are brought out then if we're on the right track by the, by the present. Now, of course, obviously, you have to, you know, the whole debate between uh, Reformation and Rome hangs here uh, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a Roman Catholic sacramental theology. You could pick up on this and, you know, run for, uh, uh, for all it's worth. But, uh, again, it's, you know, the line between uh, truth and error is so often a razor's edge. Yes. Um, how far will it be safe to say that Jesus' high priestly ministry was also inherent in him, but it has been activated with the ascension? It has been activated or began to work it out in a, in a heightened or in a very manifested way from the ascension. Yes, you, you could put it that way. Uh, um, you, you would want to be careful that you don't tone down on the absolute necessity of the death of Christ as a sacrifice. But you could put it that way. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll move on and talk about uh, sonship and high priesthood next time.